If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the Thanksgiving Prep Edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Striving each week to amplify the voices of the LGBTQIA two-spirit plus communities. I'm Chris Ann Eastwood here in Los Angeles, and this week we dip into the IMRU archive to revisit the times Abby Dees, Wenzel Jones, and Steve Pride helped your Thanksgiving prep with conversations about cooking, air travel, and mental health at the family table. Dr. Greg Kaysen has been a psychologist for over 20 years with an expertise in cognitive behavioral therapy, and he's worked with a wide range of clients on a wide range of challenges. In 2016, which you recall a particularly stressful year, we asked him about the challenges of family at Thanksgiving. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wenzel Jones. We have in studio one of our favorite people who's a old, not old, a friend of long standing. <laughs> Sad and old. For IMRU, Dr. Greg Kaysen, who is a cognitive behavioral therapist in L.A., and you might have also seen him on uh, Bravo's L.A. Shrinks. Welcome, Dr. Greg. Hi, it's good to be here. Good to be here. So can you tell us, for those of us who aren't that well-versed, what cognitive therapy is as opposed to Anything else? Yeah, cognitive therapy is the applied science. It's a therapy applied science of changing your thoughts and feelings to help you manage your feelings and to achieve your goals. Perfect. Bottom line. So (laughs) one of my understandings is that there's less emphasis on what we sort of normally think of in therapy, like going and digging way deep and talking for five years about your family. Or yeah. does that happen? No, that's right. Well, we do some. We don't. Well, we don't talk for five years, but we do dig. <laughs> we do dig. We efficiently dig, and we have some methodology to do that. But we probably don't spend as much time as say some other forms of therapy, because what we try to do are take the lessons from the past and then apply them to what's going on today. So sometimes those lessons can be very negative and cause you to do very bad things or to do things that screw up your life in the present, or you have lessons from the past that actually could be aiding you more, and that we want to emphasize more. So what we use the past for is more for learning and compassion for who you are today. And then we actually look at a technology to help you change what's going on today. Um, Thanksgiving is upon us. Yes. And <laughs> why is it so fraught? Because people come together and they relive their old family dynamics. I mean, it's just as simple as that. And plus, unfortunately, holiday dinners usually include things like alcohol, which just fuel the negative stuff. And people that we've been trying to avoid all year long, then we are forced to see at holiday dinners. 
the gay issue, though, is kind of an interesting one because, unfortunately, and I've always thought this was such a mistake, a lot of gay people choose holiday dinners and holiday gatherings to say and announce certain things. It's convenient. Yeah, it's it very is. It's so efficient. It's very convenient. Everyone's there. You don't have to write a lot of thank you notes afterwards. I mean, it's just all very right there for you. But the problem is it's somebody else's show. It's the family's show. It's not our personal show. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people mix it up and think it should be their personal stage. I think what holidays are, it's where we come together and we all sort of share this equally. And that's how holidays can work best together. But I've had certain relatives that I just have to steer clear of at the holidays because they like to be the star of the show. Oh, it's that competing (laughs) diva issue. Yeah, maybe it's that. Maybe it's just that I don't like to be the other diva on the stage, maybe. (laughs) Well, now, because the holidays are taking place during a particularly fraught political season, I'm sure we've got a lot of Thanksgiving horror stories. How can we avoid repeating that? You know, I've already addressed this with a lot of clients of mine. I mean, this is something a lot of people are dealing with. I'd say, number one, that if you think that going home for the holidays is going to cause you more pain and suffering, I'd say this would be the year to skip. We can handle a year of staying away from our families if they're just going to try to open wounds because that won't do anybody any good. Now, sometimes in a family discussion, and it's always hard to admit this, but sometimes you are the person who is about to become the problem. When you feel that bubbling up Mm. inside, how do you tamp that down? Thank you. for (laughs) Thank you. Or not tamp it down. (laughs) Well, you could. I mean, I think I, I always tell people that if you have an announcement to make to your family, please do so 24 hours before the family event or 24 hours after the family event and do so in a small group where you have their undivided attention. Don't do it when everyone's trying to share a single thing. So one thing I would do with that person who feels the need to announce something and it has to be that weekend is to make a plan that they can rely upon to if maybe do it wait two days before the event or two days after, maybe to give people a chance to decompress and they can reassure themselves as the dinner's happening that I'm going to announce this on the 27th. What are some of the other tools that you typically give patients clients who are going to go into sort of a difficult family thing. We all have difficult families. That's just the nature of family. But some some things are more difficult than others. Uh, Can you think of some examples of kind of tools that people can use? Well, I mean, it, it depends on what kind of tool you're looking for. The number one goal you need to have in talking to your family is to manage your own emotion because emotions what causes us to do the most crazy things if we're feeling rage we're likely to throw things and to yell epithets and to you know just be that unruly person who needs to be escorted out of our grandmother's house if we feel depression and sadness then maybe we'll go retreat into the bedroom and take pills or drink too much so or if we're feeling a great deal of anxiety same thing so we need to learn to manage emotions so when we look at tools, one thing we look at are emotional management skills. Now, I can't give you the full plethora of emotional management skills because it's just too many. (laughs) But one is, uh, you know, just what I said earlier, it's one, don't put yourself in that situation. But two, if you do put yourself in that situation, put yourself around people that you trust and love and that you can share with and be with. There are always those people. So unless you have a gathering of only two other people, generally you can 
segment off with someone who's more along your belief system. Maybe it's a cousin or maybe it's a husband or wife of someone in your family. But that would be a good thing to do. So control your environment. Also, eat before you go, believe it or not. If you really want to manage your emotions, eat before you go and don't touch alcohol. Those two very easy things that to do. That seems so simple. Doesn't it and seem so? yet. Would it be a holiday without <laughs> alcohol? Not in my world. Yeah. Well, I would save the alcohol till you got home and then drink to your heart's content. <laughs> that would be my advice. Yes. <laughs> One of the other challenges that it really comes up a lot for LGBTQ people dealing with their families is religion. No one, I think, wants to say your religion is wrong or, you know, you, again, you can say how you feel about that. But what comes up around the holidays in your practice? Yeah, you know, it's, it's another interesting thing to me is not that people usually don't try to shove their religion down your throat. That's the people are very respectful in general with that. But I've noticed some of the worst people are people who are atheist or agnostic try to convince people who are religious not to be religious. That's just <laughs> as crazy people. Let us just go to our individual corners and not try to convince other people of a belief system. Again, we're always trying to Often the biggest uh, mistake we make on the holidays is trying to turn it into our show rather than it respecting the show that's going on. That seems to be a theme that yeah. you're talking about I, is I, I it is not to. about you all the time. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, that I, I didn't mean to do that today. But, yeah, let's all get off our pedestals and like do a little kumbaya here because that's maybe the most important thing. I think we want to come together. We want to share with other people. We want to be with other people who think like us. But it's almost forbidden. I've heard so many people say, therapists alike, oh, we should all try to understand each other, et cetera, et cetera. And I went, BS. I was about to cuss. Sorry. <laughs> I, it's such BS to say that right now until people heal. It's okay to be around people that think just like you because like helps like. Misery loves miserable company, and so we need to be around other people who are miserable right now. And that'll, oddly enough, help us heal our wounds so that we can come back out and be together. But also we need to band together to make sure that our world persists. We're, you know, we're all afraid now that we're going to be made to wear pink triangles and get tattooed, numbers tattooed on our arms. That won't happen if people stand up. It won't happen. So... You were speaking of fear earlier, and this was something I read, and you had mentioned that you had spoken on it, yeah. that there's a segment of the population that we usually think of as having the least to fear, which is middle-aged white men, and apparently they're beginning to drop like flies. Yeah, this is really interesting, and I, I was so surprised to find this. And this was based on CDC statistics. It's not like I went out and personally looked at all the suicide you know, notes of all these people that died. This was we're looking at actual data that, that the, the government has gathered. We're seeing mortality rates decrease in every population with the exception of middle-aged white people, and that's working class and middle class mm -hmm. specifically. The only thing that seems to help them is education. So education seems to moderate the effect, but it doesn't obliterate it. So the most educated still have an increase in mortality rate in general, but it doesn't get rid of it completely. But people who are high school educated or less are dying at a super high rate, much higher than any other ethnicity or any other age group. So we're seeing this rate increase, and we're seeing it in all the behaviorally mediated, of course, suicide. Suicide's taken a huge jump, something like 
it's about one third, uh, about about a thirty-five percent increase in men, and about a forty-eight percent increase in women, in these middle-aged white people. And we're not seeing it in other groups. And also, we're seeing a super high increase in poisonings, which is primarily opiate addiction overdose. So that's from people with chronic pain issues, which is primarily behaviorally mediated or psychologically mediated. And then we also see cirrhosis from alcoholism. We also see diabetes, which is from eating poorly. So we're seeing all these populations going up and in the highest rates are in the rural areas. So we need to understand that, wait a minute, there's a group out there who's completely self-destructing at this moment. And yeah. it's scary. I wanted to ask you very quickly, cognitive behavioral yes. therapy to a lot of older LGBT people sometimes gets them nervous because it was used as, well, some people doing this in the 60s did conversion therapy under that banner. And I wonder if you could just speak to that briefly. No, I mean, I could tell you even now there are people who use CBT to do conversion therapy. There are a couple left in the world. But thank God the profession itself disavows those people. Not only the American Psychological and American Psychiatric Association, National Association of Social Work, but also CBT organizations in general. mean specifically. So this is all looked down upon, but yes, CBT has a bad rap because it did do that kind of thing. It did try to change people's sexual orientations. And we also saw this in some other forms of therapy as well. And I think it's sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater that, you know, this is essentially the bathwater. This is bad stuff. It was bad stuff. And there are other bad examples I could give to you about CBT. But we now know that we can remove those negative things and start to look at more positive things. Even we've taken years to stop treating fetishes instead of helping people just accept them. Like, who cares? (laughs) It really bugs me. It's like, who cares if someone's into feathers or, you know, different things? Does it make you happy? It just doesn't. I don't understand why that needs to be pathologized. But yet we love to pathologize sex and sexuality. We love it. That was a very interesting (laughs) note to wrap up on um, suicide fetishes <laughs> do you have a favorite therapist joke you want to so we can leave on a high note i don't uh, oh my uh, god wait how many therapists does this but take? we're getting a note from the control room is no time for jokes <laughs> <laughs> no time for how about how about a website or information about you if you can go to drgreg.com it's d-r-g-r-e-g.com and you can find out about me and you could send me on the contact form if they want to ask me a question Great. Perfect. Dr. Greg, thank you so much for coming. We always thank love to you have you for, here. Thank you for seeing through the pain of your cold and, and yes. showing up live. Thank we you. We appreciate that. I appreciate you guys sticking with me. It's Thanksgiving Day. We're shopping way too late. Nothing makes me say. Mm-mm. Nothing makes me say. Mm-mm. Looked up flights way too late. <laughs> so I just have to stay. My friends are all away. My friends are all away. So I'm just cooking. Something easy looking. Yeah, I've got something brewing in my mind. And I know it's gonna be alright. Cause my family is a weep, weep, weep. In the intervening five years, the hardworking staff of IMRU has come up with this therapist joke How many narcissists does it take to change a light bulb? Just one. All he has to do is hold it in place while the world revolves around him. 
We'll be right back with author and TV chef Greg Cope White right after this quick break. Don't go away. Just how gay is Gay Street? Coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. A short, curved, one-block street in New York City's Greenwich Village, Gay Street is between Waverly Place and Christopher Street. Photo ops often take place under the Gay Street sign where it meets Christopher Street. That spot is just across the street from the former site of the now-defunct Oscar Wilde Bookshop and a stone's throw from the legendary Stonewall Inn, ground zero for the Stonewall Riots. The street's name does not refer to LGBT issues and was probably named after an early landowner. Originally a stable alley, today Gay Street is lined with federal-style houses on one side and Greek Revival buildings on the other. The first mention of Gay Street in print appears in the Common Council Minutes on April 23, 1827. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Anthony Glassman in Philadelphia. Hello, I'm Stephen Fry. The great Oscar Wilde once said, the truth is rarely pure and never simple. That's why it's imperative that we stay informed, so pull up your ears. An excellent way to do this is by listening to Southern California's longest-running radio program for the gay and lesbian community, IMRU. Welcome back. I'm Chris Ann Eastwood, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Author, screenwriter, producer, and frequent TV foodie, Greg Cope White is also a former sergeant in the U.S. Marine Corps. We talked to him in 2015. Anyway, we are joined in studio by someone I really admire, even though he did not bring me food. Mm. Actor, I'm going to make it up. author, television writer, world traveler. Well, we're talking about Abby, but no, we're not talking about Abby. <laughs> we're talking about Greg Cope White. Also, Thank you guys for having me. Also a bon vivant. And the oh, author of the book, The Pink Marine. Yes, and Wenzel, you're a bon vivant. You're wearing a pink shirt today. No, Does can, that mean The I Pink Marine is you? I am The Pink Marine. I mean, you can Google a Marine, and no matter what image comes up, mine is right next to it. And but you are wearing me. fatigues and a pink shirt. I am. I'm always Googling Capri's. gay marine. I just get porn from San Diego. Okay, uh, now the, the question that I have about Pink Marine is we are familiar with the story where you go into the Marines and then you find out you're gay and then you come out. But you knew you were gay and you went into the Marines. Please explain. My best friend called me after our freshman year of college and said that he was going to join the Marine Corps. He was going to Paris Island, note that word, Paris, and spend the whole summer in boot camp and then finish in time for his sophomore year of college. And during that whole conversation, all I really heard was summer and camp. And I love camp. So I really didn't think about the military part. I didn't grow up in a military family. You did, Wenzel. So I didn't know what that meant. Um, And the more people during the couple of weeks before I shipped out that told me that I couldn't do it, the more I wanted to do it. And I didn't know that I was only going to get to wear green clothes. I didn't know that they were going to shave my head. I thought that I was kind of doing them a favor by going down. And then then I, I totally forgot that I was gay. And then I got uh, that contract handed to me with the question, are you a homosexual? How do you forget that at 19? I just didn't think it was a part of it. I, you know, I'm a lot of things. We're, we're all, we're all, I'm left-handed. I'm, how many things were in my introduction? A 50? lot. You know, I'm going to picture things. you now because you have great hair. 
hair. I know. They shaved your head? Thank you. Yeah. Bitch, don't shave my head. (laughs) There's no guarantee of my age it's going to grow back. So I keep it big. You know, what I do, my plan now is I blow dry it every day just as big as I can. And then I let it settle through the day along with life's disappointments. You know, it kind of deflates. And yet, despite the fact you went into the Marines as a gay man, you did not have a thoroughly horrible time of it. I mean, you still utterly respect the Marines and the military as an institution. They didn't destroy you or... It was the best thing that happened to me. I love the Marine Corps. And, you know, I have many friends and I've met friends along this journey that were kicked out for, for being gay under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And I'm, I'm horrified by, the, by those stories. That's not my story. I lied to get in. I cheated to get in. You, you know, you'll read in the, first, in the first few chapters, I failed the physical. So while I was pretty brave and able to lie on the contract about being gay, I had to lie to a Marine's face. Have a big burly Marine that jumps off that poster, the few, the proud, the Marines, ask you if you're gay. And you're really not. Of course, you're going to say, maybe if it's a date, but it's not about a date. <laughs> you, you know, I lied about that. And so I did have to cheat to get in. Those three months of boot camp were really, really a lot of pressure because I was keeping that secret in. That's what was hard. The other guys were amazing. We need to take a break right now, unfortunately, but we'll be right back with Greg Cope. Do people Why? need to send some money in? Is this well, a fundraiser? No, 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 no that's Go next week. Go and give out your website well, for the week. book. Thepinkmarine.com. It's a really fun website. I've made a lot of videos with celebrities. And yeah, thepinkmarine.com. And we'll be right back with Greg Cope White because we want to talk some food thing because he is a foodie. Well, we are talking to Greg Cope White. And he is not only the author of The Pink Marine, he is a food person. I'm on Cooking Channel's Unique Sweets, where I just eat the food. Mm. I want that job. You also contested on another show on the Food Network. I did a show for Mark Burnett called uh, On the Menu. I competed with uh, with what we should talk about at Thanksgiving. I used to part of a family recipe. Perfect. One of my favorite things to do is remember that, you know, even though some of our relatives aren't, with us any longer, mm-hmm. we can keep them with the recipes. You know, I think everybody has a favorite dish, right? Your your Thanksgiving dinner is probably already planned, and I would uh, hope to go to someone's house and eat what they made. <laughs> there's no shame in that. A restaurant, there's no shame in that. There's no shame in being a guest. There's responsibilities in being a guest. But when you're planning your menu, I hope that everybody's keeping a recipe that's passed down. Hmm. Well, now a question on the subject though: Is there a golden ratio between quirky family recipes and traditional? Because nobody wants to go to somebody else's house and find nine totally weird things that that family. You loves. want the sweet potatoes, is what right? You're right. We all require some of the basics. I mean, how many? Family menus, can you fit in without it going overboard? It depends on who's having the party. If you're hosting the party and you've invited people and you haven't asked anyone to bring anything, you get to plan the whole thing and they have to come and they have to be good guests and shut up and eat it. If you have a food allergy or a dislike, you let the host know way before the event. When the RSVP is sent in, tell them you're allergic to nuts. Do not do that when you walk in the house. That's horrible. And also, don't bring wine. Bring a bag of coffee. A great bag of coffee is great. The hostess thought of wine. That's covered. Unless it's your family and you know they haven't bought wine. But also, don't ever bring flowers to a party. That makes the host have to stop what they're doing, cut your flowers, find a vase, and they already have a plan for that. Well, see, I always worry the hostess didn't bring enough wine. That's your special worry ones, and we can talk about that later. <laughs> if you need to bring a little flask in your purse, that's fine. Or one of those boxes that. of wine. Yeah. Thank you. Well, and do you have views on drinking at Thanksgiving? Because sometimes it becomes an issue, <clears throat> I've heard. You mean like, do you want that drunk uncle corning you? She never loved you. 
that can happen. I would just, you have to pace yourself. Let's face it. Thanksgiving, you know, people have been working and cooking in the kitchen since 9 a.m. Those turkeys take a long time. And if you start drinking at the same time, it's just like snacking. You're going to, it's going to be a bad scene. So I would, I would be the responsible host too, and not just leave the liquor out unattended and, and have, and tell people just to make shots and you're in the kitchen basting that bird have a plan and don't call your guests there unless there's stuff for them to do for the four or five hours that you're in the kitchen. If you're, if they're, if they're there to watch a football game, somebody's in charge of the drinks and the snacks while you're in there whipping up the sweet potatoes with the marshmallows, which is an awesome dish, by the way. It is delicious. Now, when you get the whole family there and it's time to talk, I was just reading in the Sunday Times Magazine that Thanksgiving is apparently the most popular day of the year to come out to your family. And they gave you a little how-to how do you feel about Thanksgiving as an arena for your own staging or coming out? Look, everybody needs to do it at their own time. That's a really sensitive time. So I'm definitely, if you have, if that gives you the bravery to come out to those people, I'm personally not a fan of stealing the show. I love the comedian Bob Smith, his classic line at Thanksgiving, you know, when he came out, passed the mashed potatoes to a homosexual. His mom passed him to his dad, so that was a bigger problem. You do have to be ready for the drama that's going to ensue. Uh, If you feel it's a safe time and it's a convenient time, do it. But we don't, you know, it is about something else. But please, to thy known self be true. And if the timing's right, come out. Everybody, If you are coming out at Thanksgiving, should you bring something stronger than just wine? Bourbon. Thank you. Flat out bourbon. Is that the coming out drink? It is. It's just going to let them know. You're going to go to Bourbon Street. You're, it's all about, yeah, there's going to be some things happening. Well, and Thanksgiving, you could break it down because I always ended up in the kitchen with the women doing the dishes. So you could start there. So and then, then work your way to the football game Know later. your audience. Exactly. You know, and then you're in there with those women. They're sympathetic. And, you know, you've helped them. Well, and frankly, the living room full of men, you could just go in and say, I'm gay. And they turn around and go, please go get me a beer. Because they're not paying attention to anything at that point. I like your plan. We're going to go with, if that should be, would you send a letter in to the op-ed? Thank you. Okay, now listen, these are the burning questions in our household every year. The turkey, brining, yes or no? Brining is great. But the one thing I don't want you to do, unless you're single and want to meet a hunky fireman, don't deep fry your turkey. Don't set up that huge vat of oil under the porch Have and you done deep fry turkey. No, but oh. I've been to it and it always looks scary. I've seen it done. And it's a first off, that's a lot of oil to waste. Let's think about our planet and where that oil is going to go. Nobody needs any of that. Just roast the turkey. Uh, yes, brining is great. I, overnight, a couple of days, just let it soak. And do you have a favorite, brine. just a basic brine, or do you go for like the the? I use a brines? lot of peppercorns and a lot of salt. Super basic. Oh, we should probably explain what brining is. Yeah. Well, yeah we, I was you, sitting here <laughs> having okay. lesbian anxiety gonna, about this. Yeah. Soak the turkey in in a liquid that's going to soak up some flavor and hopefully get it a little more tender. You can put a little apple cider vinegar in there. Anything that's just going to get in there. There's so many great brines. Well, and the great thing is that it keeps the moist, uh, the moisture in the meat. So you get the breast is moist and the legs are moist. And we, we love brining. Okay, the other one? Kosher salt. Kosher salt. Basting. Some people are obsessed with basting, and some of us don't want to think about the turkey once the door is shut. I think you can save a lot of time if you put your turkey on breast side down, and that way the the dark meat juices sort do drain through and lower themselves to the heavier part of the bird, the breast. Let's be careful, because we talked about Abby's breast last week, and we got all sorts of calls. Yeah, we did. Yes, we did. Call in. Let's keep talking about breasts. Complaining about them. This breast awareness month. So roast the turkey. 
breast side down, and then the last 45 minutes, flip it over and then baste. And baste with butter. I like to rub my entire bird with butter. Now we maybe think you maybe think we're taking a left turn off the show here, but yeah, rub the entire turkey with butter, and that will roast and turn into a beautiful golden color already. And then once you flip the bird over, then start basting it, and it'll get that great color that you want, that lacquer finish, that color that I love to get when I'm in the south of France. May, I, may I ask an etiquette question that might go? You might have already answered this, but this actually came up. I have been invited to bring a side dish to a Thanksgiving, and rather than sweet potatoes or whatever, I wanted to bring roast butternut squash, which I like, which is really good, and I think it's a good substitute. My partner said, absolutely not. That's like competing with the squash. It's not a good substitute. Don't bring it. Like, bring something else entirely. It's not a substitute. It's You're bringing it as an addition to. And okay. first off, you were invited to bring a dish. Yes. You get to bring whatever you want. I would recommend zhuzhing it up a little bit. Make oh, yeah. sure there's nutmeg in it. Oh, you it's You might good. stir some pumpkin seeds in for some crunch Ooh, nice and some idea. texture, mm-hmm. you know, during that bite. I'm a huge fan of butternut squash. Okay. Yeah, you, you get to do what you want. All right. I'm going to take, actually, I, I've been thinking about taking something, even though I don't cook, but I saw this great recipe where you can make circles of a watermelon, and you can, well, I think that was your recipe. Oh, I did that, <laughs> yes, I did that for, on a Food Network pilot. Yes, so what here's a great recipe, and this is great. Talk, Wenzel, this might be your lubricant for getting the news out. <laughs> My what? What you want to do he is you take a disc of watermelon, use a cookie cutter, and slice the watermelon first into a big disc, and then use a cookie cutter to cut out shapes of the watermelon, and then soak them in rum. Just put them in a big, lay the discs in a casserole like poker chips, and then just dump rum on them. The watermelon will soak it up, and then put a slice of goat cheese on top of that, and then some fresh mint. It's a goatee mojito. Mm, it sounds delicious. And even I could do that. Yeah, you can do it. That's a great dish to bring. Mm, the, okay. add, add the basil at the end after you get there because it tends to turn brown. That might solve my squash problem. Now, this holiday always (laughs) makes me think of Susan Stamberg of NPR, and she would always give at this time of year Mama Stamberg's cranberry relish recipe, which sounded vile, but it was something her family insisted on. Do you have one of those weird recipes that you can't do without? My grandmother uh, was an amazing cook. She was also really glamorous, and she had these perfect long red fingernails. And at Thanksgiving, I used to love watching those fingernails disappear into kneading things and into big vats of food as she would cook. And yes, her dressing. Some people call it stuffing. We do it dressing. I'm not a big fan of stuffing. There's some safety issues there. So we make the dressing in a separate casserole dish. And you, you start with cornbread and you use a lot of fresh celery, a lot of fresh onions, a ton of fresh sage. And then you let that sit overnight, just those dry ingredients with the vegetables. And then you pour in about, depending on if there's ratios involved here, this isn't the recipe, but you pour in chicken broth and about a dozen eggs and you whip it up. And then when you bake it, it puffs into a little bit of a souffle. That sounds great. All that sage. Cornbread. That's Mark Seuss, the Southerner. I know. I'm Texan. Now, <laughs> the holidays, you can always come up with a Christmas horror story, but so few people want to share Thanksgiving horror stories. But I'm always hoping people have one because to me, it's prime territory. I, I was at a Thanksgiving dinner just two years ago, and a friend's dog did come up and steal the bird off the table. We were gathering. We were on our way. And you know when something falls, and you know it's going to fall, and you know it's falling, and you can't do anything, and you know it's just going to break? It was that. We were all just walking to the table, and this huge dog got on the table, took the bird, and there was nothing we could do. He had a great Thanksgiving. <laughs> we had to order pizza. 
Well, now, to almost to get back to the Pink Marine, because I grew up in the military, one of my favorite Thanksgivings was going to the mess hall because there was a huge selection of food and nobody had to clean up the mess. What was it Somebody like? Somebody had to clean it up. I've been in that. In well, that that's true. You, it's hellish. Yes. But, but now when you were in the military, what was it like to go through Thanksgiving? Because you have an appreciation for food and a skill with it that I've never had. So I was I always able it. to go home during those holiday periods. But I will say that's a great, important thing. Not just military, but everybody with social media nowadays, make sure that everybody's okay in your circle. And if you have an extra chair at your at your table, please invite somebody over. I know there's tons of programs to send old cell phones and minutes and miles to veterans. Yes, do that. But also look at your own social media circle. Who on your Facebook page just got divorced or just lost their mom? Make sure that they've got a place. And if you've got a place in your life for them, invite them over and, and just and really reach out. I'm a big fan of working in, in soup kitchens and homeless shelters, but not just on Thanksgiving. They need you in March and they need you in August. So don't just do it on Thanksgiving Day. Find another day to do that. I love doing it in the middle of the summer because that's a cold. Well, now to flip that thing about bringing people in, somebody I know on Facebook today put it out there that she had no place to go. How do you feel about that? Because to me, I thought, I get what you're doing, but it just seems so tricky. Well, before we went live, weren't we talking about how glossy people make their Facebook lives look? They're, you know, oh, hi, I'm in I'm in France today. They're covering up the hell that is the <laughs> I applaud her for if she if she doesn't have a pattern of neediness, you know, I applaud her for putting that out there. And I hope that somebody invited her to come over. And make her do the dishes just in case. Oh, yeah. If she would offer to do the dishes, that would be exactly the And maybe she'll come out. <laughs> I can only deal with so much at one meal. Is there anything about Thanksgiving you'd like to mention that we haven't covered? I would just like to say that everybody just be grateful. If you're bitching about cooking and you're bitching about having people over, you're at the wrong event. Go out to a restaurant. Be thankful that we can do this. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to us this Thanksgiving. And uh, thank don't you. forget to go check out his book, The Pink Marine, at thepinkmarine.com. And don't you've got and a blog site, website. too. I have my blog, Eat Greg Eat, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook is all Eat Greg Eat. I do have a pretty active blog, Watch Unique Sweets. But yes, please go to pinkmarine.com. And all your favorite booksellers are there, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBook. Books, a books. I love a books. You can all find it there. The TV series based on his memoir, The Pink Marine, is in the works with Sony Gemstone, Greg Copewhite, Rachel Davidson, Norman Lear, and Brent Miller for Netflix. Don't go away. We'll be right back to talk holiday travel with Trolley Dolly's Stephen Slater after this quick break. Who lived on Gay Street? Coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. A narrow, curved street in New York City's Greenwich Village, Gay Street was probably named after a former landowner. Some interesting characters took up residence there. During the 19th and early 20th centuries, black residents lived there, including two art students, Messrs. E. Hawkins and S.O. Collins, at 11 Gay Street. In the 1930s, number 14 Gay Street became famous when author Ruth McKenney moved in. Her stories birthed the Broadway musical Wonderful Town. Number 12 Gay Street was rented in the mid-1920s by Playboy Mayor Jimmy Walker to house his mistress, Zigfield Follies showgirl Betty Compton. Later, puppeteer Frank Paris lived in Number 12 where he created the Howdy Doody marionette for NBC's Howdy Doody show, premiering in 1947. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Anthony Glassman in Philadelphia. Hi, I'm Leslie Jordan, and you're listening to I Am Are You. Welcome back. I'm Chris Ann Eastwood, and you're listening to I Am Are You Radio Magazine. 
There is no flight attendant better known globally than Steven Slater. So we went to him in 2013 for Thanksgiving travel tips. Steven Slater once looked like the picture-perfect JetBlue employee in his MySpace photo, proudly telling friends, chances are I'm flying 35,000 feet somewhere over the rainbow. But after landing at New York's JFK airport on a flight from Pittsburgh, police say he hit the breaking point. The plane was uh, taxiing in. Some uh, passenger got up to take their bag down. The flight attendants approached, told them to not do that. The passenger's bag reportedly hit Slater in the head. An argument followed. He then took to the intercom telling passengers. To the passenger who called me uh, I've been in this business 28 years and that's it, I'm done. Slater then activated the plane's inflatable emergency chute, slid down to the tarmac and ran away. But not before grabbing beer from the concession cart. He was arrested at his home soon after. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Well, well. Well, Wenzel, could you please give our guest his complimentary IMRU water? Here you are, Mr. Slater. Could Why, you I... please get your feet out of the aisle? And don't expect to see me anytime again during this flight. Well, Stephen, you know, so I've, I've taken the liberty of upgrading your seat from folding to swivel tonight. Ooh. We don't do that for everyone. No, not for everyone. But unfortunately, there is a small fee for using our headphones and um, <laughs> slightly larger fee for taking them off. Well, thank you for having me, and I'll gladly, <laughs> gladly pony up there. So I just flew JetBlue a couple weeks oh. ago from here, from Burbank to New York City, and it wasn't the swanky swell of the 50s. No, my condolences. Things have changed ever so slightly. What do you think is responsible for that? I think we have uh, corporate greed at the end of the day. We went through some tremendous changes at 9-11 and gave a lot of uh, concessions that uh, we weren't given what we expected to have back. And now we have an industry that supports that, and it seems to be the kind of the way that corporate America is going, and consequently, the frontline workers get stuck kind of in the middle, and, and so do the passengers. I've got to say, I am handicapped. A lot of people know that. Some people don't. Most people out in the radio audience think I'm a young Adonis, but I'm old, and I am handicapped, and I can't raise my left arm. And because I can't raise my left arm when I go through that machine, I get patted down and wanded because, obviously, I'm a terror threat. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, so are your flight attendants and the older ladies and the young children. It seems like there's not a lot of rhyme or reason as to who they choose to pull over, and sometimes it's it's even even myself. That, this absolutely shocks me. That I lear, learned something, and again, I'm batting a thousand on my incorrect information, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, that flight attendants are only paid when the door closes. That is correct, yeah. yeah I, which is, it's, it's a little challenging. Then the fact that they are at all pleasant to me, and for the most part, they are pleasant to me um, when I'm getting on the plane, when people are trying to stuff their oversized stuff overhead, is shocking to me. You know, it just seems like the absolute wrong way to run a company. Well, I think we really have to, you know, have a passion for people and enjoy being out and about and, and interacting with, you know, our fellow humans, or that's probably not the right job for us. You know, obviously my career ended, you know, not in the most stellar light, but I certainly did enjoy, you know, meeting people from all over the world for many, many years and have just a lifetime of great memories from that time. Well, now, how many years were you a flight attendant? I flew for 20 years. So now, when, when flying was almost fun as a passenger? Mm -hmm. Was it almost fun as a flight attendant? Oh, it was wonderful. It was Europe on the weekends and coast to coast with Chateaubriand on the aisles and champagne and, you know, elegant, lovely people. And it really was a good time. You know, I used to love to watch that Pan Am show because it kind of, you know, harkened back to a time that that we all aspired to. And it was, it was, it was a joy. It really I'll was. bet you could rock a pillbox hat. <laughs> <laughs> and white gloves. Don't forget the white gloves. Yeah. Um, 
from your experience, what is what is sort of like the top one or two things you would want flyers, like I'm a very, I fly a lot, to know, like what really kind of, what do we do that pisses you off as when you're a flight attendant, if I can be frank? I, you know, I think it's just a matter of common courtesy all the way around, be it from the frontline workers to the passengers, the passengers, back to the crew. We all have to remember that we're all in this together. A lot of times your flight crew doesn't know any more information than, than you do, and it's very, very frustrating. You know, everyone wants to be frank and upfront and helpful, but sometimes our companies don't give us our my former companies didn't always give us what we needed in order to do that job. And it's, it's very difficult to not be able to take care of the people that you, you're, you're charged with caring for. Well, how much say do the flight attendants get in the way an airline is run? Because when they started charging enormous fees for luggage, so everybody started to bring everything on board where there was clearly not enough room, mm-hmm. surely the flight attendants, as soon as they first heard that, thought, no, absolutely not, don't do this. But of course, it happened. I right. mean, do they have any say? Very little, very little, because it's all dollars at the end of the day. And I mean, we, we pushed back because safety is the number one concern, and we want to know that we're getting you, you know, safely to where you're supposed to be. And, um, you know, if there's things like luggage in the aisles, et cetera, that's an impediment and that, you know, affects our performance. But no, no, we can jump up and down. And, and you know, at the end of the day, if it's a, a revenue issue, then we're probably going to lose that argument. Well, and this is something that people forget because I'm, when, you, when you read about airlines, when they first had flight attendants, they were registered nurses mm-hmm. because it was about passenger safety. And in my lifetime, it's gone from passenger safety to you are my on-staff waiter. And yes. they forget that is really not your primary job there. Right. The rest is window dressing and mm. being nice to people. That's all. That's not even a question, is it? Carry yeah. on. You, know, Statement. you gave us a list of <laughs> tips um, before, before the show, and I, I'm really taken by one I never even thought of. A small gift like a candy bar or candy given to a crew on boarding can go a long way. I've never I never thought of doing me. that. Oh, it, it does. I mean, many times someone might hand me just a little cupcake or a candy cane or something like that at the holidays. And, you know, it, it made me feel better. I mean, we're all away from our friends and our families and there's, you know, homes that we'd like to be in. And, and actually, I enjoyed my holiday trips the most because everyone's festive, they're relaxed. The challenge that the once a year flyer can be can also be a great opportunity to sort of, you know, meet new people and just kind of have people that... They're excited. They they're, they want to be there versus a lot of our business people that they're just over it, understandably. And, wow. and I never thought of time. I never thought of the once a year flyer as a category of flyer. <laughs> what is distinct distinctive about the once a year flyer? Well, they're they're usually very very. Uh, excited, but they're very confused. They don't understand about the liquids. They don't know to take off the shoes. They get to the airport either 20 minutes early or 20 hours too soon. It's just kind of like this this just confused, lost mass. And, you know, they're lovely people. They just don't quite know how it works. When the FCC started talking about Wi-Fi on board, I got very excited until they started talking about cell phones. Mm. What will that experience be like on a plane with 100 people with cell phones? Well, I commuted from Los Angeles to New York for work for quite some time, and I really enjoyed that six hours on the airplane of just uninterrupted peace and quiet. That was sometimes the only time I could read a book and have a beverage and just maybe have a nap. And I don't know that I want to listen to someone yammering there any more than I do in a crowded movie theater. It's kind of nice to have those moments of just, you know, we can just pause and relax and, and be immune I just saw, I'm sorry, but I was just on the topic, and the travel section of the Sunday paper was uh, a suggestion. Why don't we put phone booths in the airplane? <laughs> ah. A quiet place where you can take your phone and not get in everybody's way. There we go. That's I don't know the lavatory. I, well, I know. Hey, yeah, but by the fifth hour of that flight to New York, the floor of the lavatory is just too disgusting to stand in. <laughs> and people that walk around with no shoes. You see people in their sock and feet going up and down the aisle all night. I, oh, I had you. the experience of flying... Um, 
it was an international flight. It was like an 11-hour flight, and, and it was all dark. And all of a sudden, you know, everybody was napping. I heard the flight attendant yell very loudly, Sir, put on your pants. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he said, it's, it's hot in here. I'm trying to cool down. And it was hot in there. But I like to be comfortable. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about the phone thing, and I thought, you know, a lot of what flight attendants are doing are making people who are stuck together in this tube kind of get along and not tick each other off. You know, and it's just one more thing that they have to wrangle is, right. you know, please keep it down. <laughs> I mean, I, my biggest surprise is I was so thrilled when I got to be a member of the uh, Mile High Club. Oh. And then I realized it really is supposed to involve another person. Yeah. So it's like it didn't count at all. Oh, Now, boy, if I can Steve. get mildly esoteric for a minute, mm-hmm. did anybody else here read the David Sedaris piece about the passive-aggressive hostility of flight attendants? I have not, but I imagine this is going to be resonant. Uh, <laughs> does the term crop dusting mean anything to oh, you? Oh, very. It's, yes, okay, it's so is quite it true? familiar. Okay, quite what familiar. does it mean? What does it mean? Well, we'll tell you later. <laughs> no, it was just such a popular wow. piece. I was hoping That's why you it. bring gifts. That's what those yes. little gifts are all about, yes. And I'm telling you, my, my partner, when he used to travel, was very good about gifting the flight attendants, and they remembered his name, mm. and wow. he would get upgrades and treats and treasures. It's, well, I mean, that was back when they had service on airplanes. But right, when there was something to give. Yes. I have noticed that a little bit of kindness to my flight attendant goes a long way. And vice versa. And vice versa. If if we treat our customers, you know, with with respect and and dignity, then it really makes a lovely trip for everybody. And like any service position, it just makes your life easier. You can choose to get along or you can choose to fight. And, you know, I'd rather rather take the former. Now, now my partner is going to be getting on a plane on Wednesday on to fly to Florida to be with my in-laws. Oh. Do you have any tips for her? <laughs> Amtrak. <laughs> <laughs> is it really getting more popular though train travel? I love it. I love it and I you know I'm 20 year flight attendant. I'm on that train whenever I possibly can. Mm-hmm. I really am. And of course in the northeast with the frequent service New York and Boston, it's really giving the airlines a run for their money and I think we can see why. It's civilized. It's comfortable. It's uh, just it's not so It's old school wonderful. You know, there's something very, yes, relaxed about it. You and can sit there with your, your hardcover book and your cocktail and enjoy the scenery and meet other Wi-Fi. people. It's, and on it's, trains, they do have a quiet car where you're not allowed to use your cell phone. Uh, oh, really? Oh, that's yeah. great. Well, I read about travel. I don't actually go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I take the paper. Yeah, Abby travels for all of us. She does. Yeah, just that's, you know, I, it's hard, but I, I do it because I care. All right. So what do you think your number one tips are for surviving flights in this sort of crazy world now? I'm a big believer in you get what you pay for. And as much as I complain about being nickel and dimed and all these ancillary revenue fees and that, there are some things that I would gladly pay for. If I can pay something to get through security a little faster, maybe uh, board the airplane a little sooner, or nonstop flights, especially at the holidays and winter seasons when Denver, Chicago, they shut down like regular basis. If I can get a nonstop for $20, $30 more, you better believe I'm on it, especially if I have kids or, you know, family with me that I'm responsible for. Uh, anything I can do to, to ease the comfort and get us moving a little faster is probably well, cool. I always get the extra, they charge you for extra room, and it's always worth it to me. On a five-hour flight, absolutely. absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. It's the difference between deep vein thrombosis and a nice vacation. And I was surprised that in this flight they still brought me that wet towel at the end, which I thought was very classy. Are you How, kidding? What a throwback. How lovely. I'm yeah. glad to hear that. I see one of those for I years. I think it was supposed <laughs> to be wet, but it was wet. Oh, yeah. Stephen. Wait, it was very nice to refresh. You encourage it. Was, it was lemon scented, so I could refresh my face. <laughs> anyway, I was wondering 
if you fly since your famous event, your famous uh, departure, um, yes. when you fly, are you recognized by flight attendants? I generally am. I generally am. And um, how do they respond to you? It's kind of fun, you know. It's it's. I, I did a lot of. I did something that I think a lot of people sort of vicariously live through. Nobody ever thought it would happen. I never thought I would do it. But I think a lot of people found it resonant, especially you know frontline workers in the airline industry. I, when or I was doing industry. research for this, going online, there were so many hundreds of thousands of mentions of you. People had written songs about Ooh. you. There was broadcast in Japanese and German. <laughs> So I guess my question is, you had 20 years in the industry, and now you're known for one thing that you did on one day. Mm. Does that disturb you? It does. What do you want people to know about Steven Slater? Oh, I want people to know that that I enjoy I enjoy life. I'm optimistic. I want my life to be of service. I want to uh, uh, just continue to enjoy living every day as best I can. And and sometimes that means getting out there and traveling. And and sometimes it means. Speaking up for other people, sometimes I get a chance to use the platforms I have to sort of service the industry and or the people in the industry, and uh, I'll speak out on those issues when I can. Thank you. Well, you live in our hood now, so we'll have to have you back next time we talk about travel. Or we'll go to coffee or something. You can sit next to me on my next trip or any trip, any day. All my bags are packed. I'm ready to go. I'm standing here outside your door. I hate to wake you up. To say goodbye But the dawn is breaking It's early morn The taxi's waiting He's blown his horn Already I'm so lonesome I could die So kiss me And smile for me Tell me that you'll Wait for me Hold me like you'll never let me go Cause I'm leaving on a jet plane And there's still time for a last word. And tonight we end with an audio essay from Peter Dell. For my brother and me, playing catch became an escape very early in life. The dead-end road in front of our house became a bullpen one day and an end zone the next. My brother and I played catch so much because our parents fought. Graham and I sat and listened through the walls. I sided with my mom's overly emotional pleas while my brother found my dad's logic more compelling. We found that if we went outside, we didn't hear their arguments. We also liked playing catch because it provided a way to talk about intimate things without being intimate. We didn't have to look directly into each other's eyes. Tossing a ball around made us both feel like men in the most macho, stereotypical way. He tossed me a knuckleball. Are they fighting about money again, I asked. They never fight about anything else, he answered as I tossed him the ball back. I heard him say that we may not have enough money to pay for the broken water heater. Fastball, high and to the left. Ball one, I added. Same thing happened last month too when the car broke down. My brother windmilled his arm to loosen it up more. Is that why daddy had water instead of dinner the other night at Joe's cafe? Yep. 
as the older brother, he always knew better than I did what was going on with my family. When I finally came out to Graham, it wasn't a coincidence that we were playing a game. A video game this time. Graham, there's something I want to tell you. He shot at my alien, missing. Yeah? he asked. I'm gay. I fired on him this time, trying to capture his enemy base. The seconds ticked down on the clock. Are you serious? My shot went wide. His turn to fire back. Yeah, that's the real reason Christine and I broke up. He carefully aimed. Wow, that's pretty amazing. I mean, thanks for telling me. I really like knowing about your life. He scored a thousand points. The game paused and we were forced to look at each other. I just wanted to tell you before you found out from someone else. I haven't told mommy and daddy yet. I wanted to talk to you first to see what you thought. I'd wait a while to tell them. There's too much going on in the house right now with both of us going off to school. This past Christmas, my brother flew in from Chicago to be with us in our Southern California home. We don't see each other often anymore because 2,000 miles separate us. He's a flight instructor now on its way to becoming an airline pilot. My brother now plays on volleyball and softball teams in his neighborhood. He enjoys learning the sport, whatever it might be, and he still plays better than most people on his team. We played catch again for the first time in years. My parents don't fight very much anymore. They seem beyond that now. This time we played catch to have fun. We talked about his wife and my boyfriend and what our plans were. He sent me deep for a fly ball. I caught it over the shoulder, something I had tried for years to master. My brother imitated the roar of a crowd as I made my victory dance in the imagined right field warning track. Even though I had been with my family for a week, I felt for the first time like I was home. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Chris Ann Eastwood. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, and if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public at prideonscreen.com. A reminder, we are a global podcast, as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. And you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Cast. I'm Chris Ann Eastwood here in Los Angeles. You can follow me on Twitter at BigBroadSports.com. So long, happy Thanksgiving, and thank you for listening. Remember, thanks is good, the giving is better. Our producer is Native American, so we close with the Thanksgiving song he's insisted on for over 20 years. So long. Happy Thanksgiving. 
This grudge can't last forever Stole my land So need some turkey while it's still warm Stole my land Cause I've been here a while and you've been here a while And together we can live in peace So let's forget the past and all have a laugh While I chop down the rest of your trees You stole my land Greedy evil man Yourself Stuffing and cranberries inside Stole my land We'll share this smorgasbord together Stole my land I bet we both like pumpkin pie no. You came to the west with your germs and your death Brutalizing every woman and man Killed everyone in sight Cause you thought it's alright Now you're doing the same to this land You stole Selfish plan Killing anyone who's tan You stole my land Destroyed the trees and the sea and the sand You just stole, stole my land stole, 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 stole my land stole my land We can dwell on the past and we can fight now fight Or we now. can shake hands and be friends right now right You now. can talk about the cause of your stole plight now land. Or sit down next to me and have a bite now We would have told you but you killed us, we're gone now you're doing to this land, it won't be, won't long, be now. long now.